Kenzo Tange sets a kind of new watermark in world architecture for architecture and urbanism designed not through history or even through context, but through data. Tange, who proposed the idea of metabolism architecture, and even in the 1800s or 19th century, architects like Serda, you can already see elements of urban analytics, even though we probably wouldn't call them in that way today. Hello and welcome to the third episode of our summer series on The Urbanist. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Over the past few weeks, we've been taking inspiration from the biggest names in architecture, city planning and design to uncover how they continue to shape our cities with their rich legacies. For this episode, we explore the career of one of Japan's architectural greats, the late Kenzo Tange. Join us over the next 30 minutes as we explore the challenges and opportunities of city reconstruction and take notes on the ever-evolving world of urban analytics. That's coming up right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. With buildings on five continents, a Pritzker Prize for architecture and credit for pioneering an entire architectural movement, Kenzo Tange's position as a great architect is secure, especially in his home country of Japan. But beyond his personal achievements, Tange's work in the Metabolis movement, in urban analytics and in post-war reconstruction have also had a profound impact on our cities. To tell us a little bit more about the man who inspired today's episode, here is the Tokyo University postdoctoral fellow, Matthew Mullane. I began researching Kenzo Tange about a decade ago when I began researching the Nakagin Capsule Tower, which recently met its untimely end. Kenzo Tange was that architect's teacher at the University of Tokyo. And what drew me to him was not necessarily his architecture, but his writing and his educational approach, his pedagogy. He was really a pioneer, not only in terms of architectural design, but in the way that architects are trained in Japan. And for that reason, he's an enormous figure in Japanese architectural history. Kenzo Tange was born in 1913 in Osaka. So this is in Western Japan. And like many children during the wartime era, coming from a somewhat wealthy family, he was able to go to special schools and kind of indulge his interest in engineering, which is the way that most students in Japan get introduced to architecture. And he would kind of continue that interest in engineering throughout the rest of his life, training his students to not only design historically important forms, but structures that were engineering kind of marvels. Even in the 1970s, starting up his own specialized engineering firm to design some of the most engineering-wise spectacular buildings that Japan had ever seen. Some of the earliest projects that Tange worked on were through the Japanese imperial government. So from the 1880s into the 1940s, the Japanese imperial government was expanding through Asia into places like Korea, Taiwan, and Manchuria. And Tange, uh, like many architects during this time, kind of honed his skills designing buildings for the Japanese empire, particularly in Manchuria. One of his most famous works that really kind of introduced him to the architectural world was the Hiroshima Peace Memorial. 
built in Hiroshima. Of course, kind of marking ground zero of the Hiroshima atomic bombing. The building that he designed in the park that was designed around there took its kind of influences, both in terms of layout and architecture and even symbolism from these earlier wartime projects. So there's a kind of myth, let's say, in Japanese architecture history that 1945 is this kind of year zero where everything that happened before it stopped at 1945 and Japan was reborn in the post-war period, developing magically from the ashes. However, that isn't necessarily true. Many state actors and architects who were successful during the wartime continued to work and kind of translate those skills that were honed during the war and in the empire for Japan in its reconstruction. Tange's career took off at the end of the Second World War, a period of epic reconstruction in Japan, and his role at this time would forever shape how people regarded his work. This experience as a colonial architect was profoundly important for his theorization of reconstruction after the war. And I think in many ways, Kenzo Tange is really the preeminent designer and theorist of reconstruction. He imagined Japan rebuilding, not only returning to a base level of wartime operation, but excelling and exceeding that. So he developed many plans to reconnect Japan into essentially a megalopolis, tying all of Japan's cities together with rail lines and large multi-use pieces of architecture that would later be called megastructures. He and his studio or lab at the University of Tokyo developed maps and graphs prophesizing essentially how this new hyper-connected Japan could come to be. Now, like I said, a lot of these ideas were not kind of coming out of thin air. A lot of these proposals and ideas to connect Japan by rail and by new highways and megastructures were really first experimented with in the colonies. You know, to colonize an area like Manchuria or Korea requires a lot of infrastructure, a lot of railroads connecting all of these disparate places. So he used a lot of that experience in Japan after the war. The need for reconstruction is sadly one that has not gone away. In 2022, the focus is on the rebuilding effort that will be required in Ukraine when the war with Russia one day ends. Cities across that country are looking for a way forward, a way to plan for an urban renaissance. My name is Pierre Pursegle. I'm an urban historian at the University of Warwick in Coventry in England. There I teach the history of war, of urban disasters and reconstruction. I'm writing a book on the urban reconstruction of Western Europe after 1918. And before the recent invasion of Ukraine, I was already working with Ukrainian colleagues at the Center for the Urban History of Eastern Europe in Viv on a wider project that would actually encompass the whole of interwar Europe. And among other objectives, what we're hoping to achieve was that this study of what is, in this case, a century-old process of urban reconstruction could help us inform discussion about the reconstruction of the Donbass region of Ukraine that had been occupied and devastated since the initial Russian aggression of 2014. And of course, the latest invasion since February has just thrown those issues into sharp relief. 
Dr. Persiglar explains what lies ahead for Ukraine. In many ways, the reconstruction starts as soon as the devastation starts. The civilian victims of a military aggression and, of course, their national and local authorities very quickly start thinking about rebuilding and reconstruction, even though, of course, they're very often not in the material conditions to actually start the work in very practical term. But it's essential to think about reconstruction because, in a sense, what is at stake in the discussion about rebuilding a city or a nation is about the future. It is about the very reasons why you're fighting this war, defending the homeland or the city. So thinking and talking and planning for reconstruction should really be seen as part and parcel of the war efforts. Reconstruction projects are not limited to the theatre of war. Disaster reconstruction is a process that also involves many of the same techniques and processes. We spoke with Amy Chester, Managing Director of the United States organisation Rebuild by Design. Rebuild by Design began after Hurricane Sandy as an initiative of HUD, which is our federal government. President Obama's Hurricane Sandy Task Force released a report about rebuilding, and one of the initiatives was to create a very large-scale international design competition for the region to think about what our communities will need for the future. Now, remember, it's been almost 10 years, and Hurricane Sandy devastated New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. It was a huge wake-up call. And before that time, of course, we saw Hurricane Katrina, but we weren't used to seeing all the destruction in the United States from climate events that we are now. So it was a very big moment for the U.S., and it was one that President Obama wanted to take and kind of grab and do things differently. And this was the first time that the federal government allowed disaster recovery funds that came after a storm to be used in a way to build for the future, not only to put back exactly what was there before. There are major parallels between post-disaster and post-war because a war is a disaster. It is a physical destruction of a place. And it's a place that people call home. It's a place that people felt secure in that no longer feel secure. And with that, sadly, brings an opportunity. It's an opportunity to rethink how we want to live for the future and to come together with your neighbors, with the government, and to reimagine what a community looks like, what a city looks like for the next century. You have an opportunity to really think and a responsibility to do so in a way that is bigger than yourself and really thinking about what the community needs now. Cities and communities are constantly rebuilding themselves, but even more so for climate change. It doesn't matter if you live by a riverine or the coast or a Great Lake, you are feeling the effects of climate change, and that is felt through every single state. So communities are absolutely thinking about rebuilding ahead of the next disaster, and that's something that we called resilience. How could we rebuild the infrastructure we have today before people are hurt, before there are massive amounts of destruction, and do it in a way that can enhance our communities, whether it is a dry day or a wet day? Destruction from climate change also forces communities to rethink their cities, and also the potential for growth in the wake of a catastrophe. Here's Dr. Persiglar again. Sadly, there's no shortage of historical and contemporary examples of urban devastations and urban reconstruction, either 
after military conflicts or even after environmental disasters. Now, the architectural challenge is not easy to solve, but perhaps the easiest to solve because there is, of course, today, as there were even 100 years ago, a great deal of expertise and a great deal of talent invested in this process. But if you think, for instance, back to the experience of Hiroshima, one of the defining features of this specific example of reconstruction was that architects and planners had a very clear vision to implement. And the idea in this particular case was to actually break with the recent militarist past of the city and really to turn Hiroshima into a peace city. The reason why I mention this is because I think it's important to think of reconstruction not simply in technical terms, but in political terms. It is essential for local and national authorities and the populations to determine, to define a vision of what the good city in both general and practical term means in the wake of a military conflict. And I think this is of particular interest to the Ukraine because what we are witnessing today is an effort to build a democratic society. And it's very important that the reconstruction process actually contribute to this wider objective and process. According to Amy Chester, it's the job of the communities that are being rebuilt to define their heritage and dictate the future for their urban environment. I personally think that keeping the character is really important, but I leave that up to the city and the community to decide. And if they choose that it's time to create a new character for their city and they do it in a way that's open and transparent, that's up to them because I do believe that they should be in the driver's seat. Thinking about it in the U.S., you know, we have such a history of racism in our planning and zoning regulations. Having an opportunity to rebuild starting from a different place is really exciting. So I do think of this as an opportunity. And to be honest, it actually excites me that we have this huge opportunity around the world to rethink our communities for climate change. And in the post-war setting, considering how a conflict will be memorialized is important too. Local populations will not simply seek to remember the city of the past. They will also be seeking to memorialize and remember their very recent past. And in this case, of course, the experience of the war. So as part of the rebuilding of the city, the restoration of damaged or destroyed urban heritage, there will also be the construction, the design of a new urban heritage that will be defined in such a way as to reflect the vision and the memory of the war experience and of the devastation as well, of course, as of the sacrifices of soldiers and civilians involved in in this war. So reconstruction is not simply from the point of view of heritage, not simply about restoration or even preservation. It is also about the redefinition of the city's heritage and about the memory of the ongoing conflict. Kenzo Tange's legacy is most evident in Tokyo. Kenzo Tange's imprint in contemporary Tokyo is quite heterogeneous, actually. I think for many tourists visiting Tokyo, the first thing that you might see near the center of Tokyo are his Olympic buildings, so the gymnasium, a massive concrete shell structure with a really novel suspension system to hoist this enormous open span roof. 
today it's a kind of symbol of post-war Japanese reconstruction. However, he also designed a lot of buildings that are not so remarkable. So the building that I work in in Tokyo at the University of Tokyo is actually designed by Kenzo Tange. Not many people would know that. It looks like a fairly normal office building. However, there are a few programmatic clues. Kenzo Tange, always thinking about the urban scale and how people move through space and what is the most efficient way for people to move through space, applied those principles at the architectural scale. And he developed a system that he called the core system. He often drew it as a tree with a singular trunk and many branches. And so I think that this is really the first kind of spatial and programmatic hallmark of Kenzo Tange's work that applies not only, as I said, architecturally, but also urbanistically. So for those who know what to look for, perhaps it isn't so difficult to spot a Tange. Our Tokyo bureau chief, Fiona Wilson, takes us to one of these discrete masterpieces. Such is its discrete simplicity that it would be easy to pass by the Sogetsu Kaikan building in Tokyo and not realise that it is a celebrated work by one of Japan's best-known 20th-century architects. Kenzo Tange was invited to design this new headquarters for the Sogetsu School of Ikebana Flower Ranging by its pioneering founder, Sofu Teshigahara. The first son of an Ikebana artist, Teshigahara always questioned the rigid traditions of the discipline and broke away to found his own Ikebana school in 1927. Although 11 storeys high, the building is a discreet presence on busy Aoyama Street. The dark blue mirrored facade of the building is a blank canvas that reflects the sky and the trees that line the grounds of Akasaka Palace on the opposite side of the road. The building almost appears to be split in two, with the slenderest of gaps slicing through its sharp corner. Tange completed the building in 1977 and took the 10th floor as his own office. Many visitors today come specifically to see one particular feature, the indoor stone garden designed at the request of Sofu Teshigahara by the great Japanese-American artist Isamu Noguchi. The two knew each other well, and Teshigahara's son Hiroshi recalled that his father asked Noguchi, with Tange's blessing, to design the plaza when 70% of the building work was already completed. His father, he said, made no requests at all and left everything to Noguchi. The two-floor open plaza of stone and water is known as Tengoku, or heaven, and as well as its giant hunks of stone, it also has a tree that was struck by thunder and a spiral-shaped ceramic feature that catches running water. Many events have been held in this remarkable space, from Ikebana displays to live performances. Noguchi's famous Akari paper lights were exhibited here in 1984 to celebrate the artist's 80th birthday. Noguchi also created Pylon, the tall sculpture at the building's entrance. The building houses Sogetsu's headquarters, but also a library, classrooms and a shop for Ikebana essentials such as vases and scissors. Tange's 1977 building replaced an older structure he had designed for Sogetsu in 1958. The basement hall for that building is still in place today, a venue for films and performances. Sogetsu Kaikan was given new energy when the design studio Nendo moved in. Founder Oki Sato and his team designed their own office upstairs, but also took on the second floor cafe. The new cafe, Connell, overlooks a small park on one side and Noguchi's interior garden on the other. The original decor was still intact, and Nendo did as little as possible and wisely reconditioned the old Aero Sarin and tulip chairs and tables. 
it's a good spot to come and read or work, looking onto the trees and watching the world pass by below. Tange designed other, more famous buildings in Tokyo, not least the monumental City Hall. Then there's the Yayogi Gymnasium, built for the 1964 Olympics, and the Shizuoka Press and Broadcasting Centre from 1967, a rare survivor of Japan's metabolism movement, of which Tange was a key part. The sleek beauty of Sogetsu Kaikan should not, however, be overlooked. It's a building which quietly gets under your skin. What becomes evident about Tange's way of thinking when it comes to designing these buildings is his use of data analytics. His idea for kind of reconstructing Japan was done so not only through the lens of architectural design, but really through the amassing and kind of critical analysis of data. I think in many ways, Kenzo Tange sets a kind of new watermark in world architecture, post-war architecture, for architecture and urbanism designed not through history or even through context, but through data. He treated his lab at the University of Tokyo almost like a think tank. All of his students operated like kind of data analysts, in essence. They would take data from census reports, from the Bureau of Transportation, measuring how many cars are on a highway and so forth, and use this data to create new proposals for not only buildings, but huge urban projects. And I think that this is another great example of the way in which Kenzo Tange was able to kind of translate his wartime experience into the post-war. During the wartime, you're working with the government, you're working with the military, you're working with major businesses and corporations. And in the post-war period, he was able to do that back in Japan in a really deft way. The study and use of urban analytics is a key part of urban design to this day. And as more and more data is gathered, the field is expanding and improving. We spoke with the Deputy Director of Urban Analytics at the Alan Turing Institute, Danny Arabus-Bell, to find out more about this ever-growing field of study. Urban analytics, I would say, is a combination of data, algorithms and computers and how the three of them can be used to, uh, on the one hand, understand better how cities work. And then at the same time, there's a very clear goal of trying to design and influence the design of cities in ways that work better for its citizens. It's hard to define when the start of urban analytics can be pinpointed in the timeline and I suppose it depends on what definition and how strict you go but maybe if you remove the data and the computers using technology to understand cities in a quantitative way which more or less is what urban analytics is about goes back well beyond the appearance of computers and things like trying to understand cities by measuring phenomena that happened or by trying to quantify aspects of urban life. You could imagine those being aligned with urban analytics and go back well before the advent of computers. People like Tangi, who proposed the idea of metabolism in architecture, and even in the 1800s or 19th century, architects like Serda, you can already see elements of urban analytics, even though we probably wouldn't call them in that way today. I think at every point in time in history, the main technological developments that have been happening have been landed on, on cities in different ways. And urban analytics has been 
in some ways the bridge between technology and data and urban spaces or the science, for a lack of a better term, of understanding cities. Some of the main applications of urban analytics in urban life today, I think, are good expressions of technology in the best possible way, in the sense that they do their job and they get out of the way. So transit planning, how we organize the deployment of public transit or private mobility, things like cars, taxis and new mobility like electric scooters. All of these are examples of how we're using data that is coming out of cities to plan and to make life in cities better. And most of the time we don't realize it is there, but when one of the data collection on the tube in London fails, then things start going a bit out of sync and people do notice them. Some of the areas that I hope we could see more urban analytics in the future is in how the use of data and the use of analytics feeds into the planning of cities and how it also helps us better understand inequalities that play out in cities. And there's also a huge opportunity in closing the feedback loops in these systems where we're not only using the data from the city to understand the city, but also we can start using it to feedback decisions about the state of the city. And using these systems not only for optimizing day-to-day operations, but also to think a bit more ambitiously about how we design cities. How do we make sure that the inequalities that play out in cities are properly acknowledged and taken into account when designing policies in the best possible way? These legacies have come to form the touch points of the storied career of a giant in Japanese architecture. In 1987, citing dedication to his craft and groundbreaking work, Kenzo Tange won the Pritzker Prize for Architecture. In his speech at the awards ceremony, Tange recounted his work with his late friend and contemporary, the American architect Louis Kahn. Actually, I prepared some paper tonight, but sitting in this room, suddenly I remember Louis Kahn's sad memory. Then I like to express my feeling to all of you as my comment. Thank you very much. Tange's work throughout the 20th century had seen him grow to be one of the most recognisable and respected names in his field. Kenzo Tange was absolutely an early star architect, as we would call him today. He knew how to represent himself in the media. So just in the same way that he used governmental data in different types of media to design his projects of reconstruction, he embedded himself in popular media. He was very much aware of how an architect could promote themselves through mass media. With a career spanning eight decades and buildings on five continents, Tange's influence stretched far and wide. His star architect power is undeniable and his legacy is unmistakable. But for many, his memory might be less set in concrete and more about what was put to page. 
He's remembered mostly as a teacher, I would say. He produced so many successful architects and engineers throughout the course of his life. He was very successful in the post-war period for his ability to translate wartime experience towards post-war reconstruction. But he was also very, very interested in Japanese architecture history before the war and studied some of the most important historical pieces of Japanese architecture from the early modern period and even much older from the 7th and 8th centuries. Documented these buildings, like the shrine at Issei, perhaps one of the most famous extant buildings in Japan, one of the oldest pieces of wooden architecture, or the Katsura Villa, which is this example of early modern Japanese design. Photographed them, theorized them as being foundational to a specifically Japanese understanding of modern architecture. And this, I think, is really one of his greatest contributions, is theorizing a specifically Japanese origin for modern architecture. And I think today, even though you know, his buildings are lasting icons, it's really some of his books, I think, and teachings that still resonate not only with Japanese architecture students, but with architecture students all around the world. And I think, you know, if you were to enter an architecture class today, they're studying his buildings, but they're also reading his books. And I think that's a real testament to his work. Well, that's all for this episode of our summer special series here on The Urbanist. My thanks to Matthew Mullane, Pierre Perseglar, Amy Chester, Fiona Wilson and Danny Arabas-Bell for joining us on the show today. And also to Chris Lord for production assistance. The programme was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. Head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or monocle.com to subscribe and ensure that you get the next instalment of our series. Next week, our final episode assesses the queen of the curve, Zaha Hadid. Zaha Hadid, throughout her entire professional practice, practiced painting as one of the former steps. It was never the plan coming first. It was always the painting, the artwork, that was the foremost process. It was always about abstraction turning into something concrete. The full episode is out on Thursday at 2000 hours UK time. That's 2200 hours in Baghdad. And to play you out this week, here's Japan's Shinichiro Yokata with Quiet Town of Tokyo. Thank you for listening, city lovers. (laughs) 